Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done about 580 of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there is a PayPal button on every page of the website, and there's also a donations page for people who don't feel like using PayPal. My guest today is Helene Wabe. Helene is the Director of Research at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. There are several scientists from that group that I've interviewed, including Dean Radin and Cassandra Vieten. Is she still there? She's not currently there, but she was CEO and scientist there for a number of years. Yeah, wonderful group. She's an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Wabe is clinically trained as a naturopathic physician and research trained with a Master of Clinical Research and two postdoctoral research fellowships. She has published on and spoken internationally about her studies on complementary and alternative medicine, mind-body medicine, stress, and post-traumatic stress disorder, and their relationships to physiology, health, and healing. But that's not what we're going to talk about. Her current research interests include healing stress and trauma, examining mechanisms of mind-body medicine, and rigorously studying extended human capacities. And that last bit is what we're going to talk about. Dr. Wabe's extensive meditation training includes the mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher training by John Kabat-Zinn, a four-year meditation teacher training with Core Light, and a 19-year regular meditation practice. Core Light, by the way, is um, was founded by Leslie Temple Thurston, whom I interviewed over 10 years ago, and Brad Laughlin, who are now both living in South Africa. I'm still in touch with Brad, we emailing recently. Wonderful. Yeah, he's lovely. So mainly what we're going to talk about today is channeling, because that's what Helene is studying scientifically. And she has a rather broad definition of the term. So I think we should start by having you define the term. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, most people, when they think of channeling, they might think of trance channeling, where the channeler believes they are acting as a vehicle for a non-physical being to speak through them and use their body to speak. So I'm using kind of a broader umbrella definition of channeling, which is um, basically accessing information and energy from beyond our conventional notions of time and space. And with this definition, we know that the, these experiences of what I'm calling channeling exist on a spectrum. So gut hunches and intuition could be called channeling, and going all the way to the other side of trans-channeling would also be called channeling, and then everything in between. Mm -hmm. So trans-channeling would include people like Edgar Casey, who seems to have been very genuine as far as I can tell, and talking about spectrums, and then J.C. Knight, who, in my opinion, is not so genuine, or somehow that whole thing has gotten rather dark. But 
that's what most people think of, I think, when they think channeling. Or Bashar, you know, Daralanka, mm-hmm. whom I've interviewed, who's actually my most popular interview. So we're going to explore that. And we're also going to explore various points along the spectrum that you alluded to. My wife, Irene, asked a question, which it would be a good thing to start out with here. She said, very often psychics, mediums, or healers will say their ability runs in their family. Is this consistent with your research, and what can you tell us about this particular genetic predisposition? And in fact, you have a personal account of this, because your mother and grandmother were channelers of some sort, right? That's right. That's a great question. And yes, anecdotally, we know that these phenomena experiences are known to run in families. So I've seen it in my family. We have one of very few studies done in Scotland that has looked at how second sight has gone through in families. It has not been formally evaluated, though. What is second sight? Second sight is the Scottish name for premonitions or precognition or having a vision of someone passing and then and then they pass. So in Scotland, they call it the second sight. And so there was a survey study done in Scotland on that and also a pedigree study where there were multiple interviews done where they saw how it was traveling through families, this experience of second sight. So we have done a formal study looking at high-functioning psychics compared to controls. It was a small pilot study, but we did find a unique part of the non-coding DNA that was different between the psychics and the controls. And so that was really What is the non-coding DNA? That means that it is not coding for a specific protein that we know about mm-hmm. and that it is thought to be involved in regulation of protein synthesis or some other sort of moderating aspect of the DNA transcription. I think I've heard that people studying DNA, there was a whole lot of the DNA that they didn't understand what it could possibly be doing, and and they kind of just said, oh, that's just junk DNA, probably just redundant or unused or some such thing. Is that a thing? Is that what some people have said? Yeah, so they used to call it junk DNA. So when the human genome was first defined, described, it was like, oh, there's all these parts that don't do anything. They're just junk. And so now we've moved away from calling it junk. It's called non-coding because they're learning that Perhaps it doesn't code for specific proteins that we know about, but it's doing sort of moderation, if you will. And that's a large growing field called epigenetics that's evaluating that. We just did this pilot study and we want to do further studies. We're trying to raise some funds to do a follow-up for that, comparing controls with cases in much larger numbers so that we can look at the nuances of the different types of channeling experiences that people have, like mediums versus precognition, et cetera. And then we have a current study that we're doing now where, you know, so many people have gotten their samples done through 23andMe or Ancestry.com. So we have a study where we're inviting people to actually upload their raw data and then completing a questionnaire of their channeling experiences to see if there's a relationship with those two. So that's our non-funded study to be able to look at that research question. 
That's really cool. I'd never considered that possibility for 23andMe and, and Ancestry.com that you could actually submit your data to somebody like you. And that's kind of exciting because, I mean, think how expensive it would be for you to test everybody's DNA. <laughs> yes, I'm very aware of that. Yeah. So it's a great opportunity. So if any of your listeners are interested in participating in that, they can go to our website to the Participate in Research page and learn how to upload their raw data and be part of that study. So that's the genetic piece and, and how we're moving forward with that. The other thing I wanted to share is we've done so many survey studies now where we actually ask people, does this run in your family? And the majority of people say yes. Um, and the majority of people experience these phenomenon as children rather than as adults. There are, um, you know, when we look at just trans channelers, it seems to begin when they're older. But for the other phenomenon, it seems to happen as a child. And that, yes, they do know people in their family that have had similar experiences. It's rather telling that scientists should say, oh, well, we don't understand what all this DNA is, this extra stuff, so it must be junk. I mean, right. it's so presumptuous. It sort of presumes that there actually is no profound, deep, divine intelligence orchestrating the universe and that we're just biological robots in a meaningless universe and somehow or other we lucked into being alive and most of it is accidental and therefore there's all this junk. Right, and it's also quite arrogant because it's yeah. like, oh, well, if we don't know it, then it doesn't right. exist. Right, couldn't exist, right, which it, <laughs> we can apply that same mindset to so many circumstances, and we'll be applying it to the very subject of channeling during this conversation. If there is some aptitude for channeling detected in some of this DNA that um, we didn't understand the purpose of, think how many other aptitudes might be encoded in a whole lot of the other DNA that we don't understand. Yes, absolutely. I feel like we're just, you know, beginning this process of understanding the incredible mechanisms involved in our DNA and how it influences us, not just in a physical way. Yeah. Another thought on this is why it runs in families. Let me just run this by you as a hypothesis and see what you think. There's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita which comes to mind. Arjuna asks Krishna, well, what happens if you're on the spiritual path and you don't get enlightened and you die? And Krishna says, well, you might go to the worlds of the pure and illustrious and live there for a long time and then, then be reborn and, you know, in a, in a virtuous family. And, and then he said, if you're really lucky, uh, you could be reborn in a family of yogis, although such a birth as this is more, as this is more difficult to attain on earth. So I think it's not by accident that we're born in certain families. Of course, obviously, there have been so many cases of very spiritual people being born in abusive families and all that. But obviously, very often, there's a tendency for people to be born into families which resonate with their higher purpose or their, their spiritual aptitudes, which eventually unfold. And then there's all this interesting stuff. If you read Michael Newton and all about agreements and little soul families, and we are born into circumstances which are conducive to our further growth and spiritual advancement. Yeah, I think there's two pieces that, that come up for me around that. One is the actual physical genetics, and is there something about the way that we're wired that allows us to channel in specific ways? So it's the whole nature-nurture. So then there's the whole nurture. So if you, people are experiencing this in their families and they're exposed to it, then 
it supports them to perhaps learn how to do it in a specific way. Although in many of these families, it's still hidden. Granny Margaret has this thing, but she's never talked about it. And she whispered it to me on the side and no one talks about it because it's so taboo. Yeah, because people so gave them a hard time when they talked about it. Exactly. Yeah. And certainly for me, it was very much a part of my family and yet still realized, okay, I need to keep this hidden because it's taboo in the broader world. But it certainly allowed me to feel more comfortable when I was having my own experiences that, you know, I wasn't um, totally crazy or I didn't feel isolated in those experiences because I had some frame of reference. Yeah, that's another interesting whole theme that we can maybe get into, but just how very often people who are having the most profound experiences are outliers in the in their milieu in in the the family or the school or the society in which they live and um imagine a society in which these kinds of things were the norm and and how how much more fully these kinds of abilities could blossom if they weren't put down or doubted by the people around us absolutely i mean that's one of my primary motivations and the work that i'm doing is to really bring awareness to it we have a, a, a newer program called um, the Noetic Signature, and um, I've been working on developing an inventory that actually allows people to assess the types of experiences that are more common for them. So our premise is that everyone has the capacity to channel in some way, and that the way that they do it is unique to them. And so how can we support people to find that unique noetic signature within them and then support them to nurture it if they choose to. Just like the MMPI or the Myers-Briggs, you have your noetic signature that is perhaps stronger in certain factors than others. I actually just finished developing the final version and that's going to be available online for our final validation testing if people want to participate in that study too. Great. If people want to participate in the kinds of studies you're doing, if they want to submit their information to you, how do they do that? So you go to our website, www.noetic.org, and at the bottom of the page it says Get Involved. And when you click the Get Involved page and scroll, I think it's middle to the bottom, it'll say Participate in Our Research Studies. And that's the page to bookmark and keep checking back. And then also, if you get on our email list, we'll send out newsletters and blogs about the different studies that are ongoing and also share about the results of our previous studies. Okay, great. And we'll, we'll remind people of that towards the end. You just said a minute ago that um, everybody has the capacity to channel. And before that, you said that there are many, as you're defining the word, there are many different flavors or varieties of channeling, many different things we might refer to when we use that word. And I think I've heard you say that a lot of people have channeled, broadly defined, without even knowing it, that there are many things that happen in everybody's ordinary lives that would be evidence of this innate ability. And perhaps if they became aware of the fact that they're actually already having some of these experiences, it would help them unfold the capacities more. Yes. Imagine the thousands of choices we make every day, right? And so if there's some unconscious channeling, if you will, that's going on, and I choose to go right instead of left, and then there's a synchronicity that happens where I run into a person I've been thinking about, or I'm running late 
to get ready for work and I leave a half an hour later and then realize that there was a huge crash on the freeway that I would have been driving right next to. Being at a stop sign and just pausing uncharacteristically for some reason and some person flies by and passes through the stoplight and would have hit you. These things happen over and over again. We have so many stories from our qualitative surveys where people write in these experiences and this happens all the time for people. And so I think part of it is bringing awareness and intention. So if you want to see if this is happening in your own world and you aren't aware of it, just setting that intention and becoming aware of these synchronicities and these different choices that you're making is a great way to start with that. One mindset that people who would be very skeptical of the notion of channeling are in is that there really is no other side or all these subtle phenomenon that people like us are interested in, and that consciousness is merely an epiphenomenon of brain activity, and that when the brain dies, that's the end of it, and that you could be put in one of these devices that exposes your brain to magnetic fields, and it could give you the experience of -of out-of-body experiences and all kinds of mystical states, but it's really just magnetic manipulation of the brain, and so on and so forth. But the kind of thing you were just talking about like having an intuition about some impending traffic accident or all sorts of the kinds of synchronicities that Carl Jung, I think, coined the term to discuss, imply or indicate that it's not just brain chemistry, that there must be some deeper field of information that we somehow tap into. So let's talk for a little bit about the kind of materialistic worldview, which would be skeptical of this whole conversation, and what a refutation or an overcoming of that worldview might open the scientific community to in terms of the things it considered possible. Yes, this is a huge topic. And we're right, kind of, I feel at this crux of this paradigm shift from the materialistic paradigm into a post-materialistic world. And It's challenging being at this crux because there are skeptics. There are people who are really invested in a materialistic worldview where the belief is that only the material matters, that our consciousness is confined and created from our physical brain. And yet there's so much evidence coming from so many different arenas that I think disprove that or at least lend an incredible amount of evidence that that is not true, that our consciousness actually goes beyond our brain, that to me, it's not even a question anymore. And so what do you say to those skeptics? I think you have skeptics again on a spectrum. You have the diehard skeptic that is totally entrenched in their worldview that no matter how many papers, no matter how much evidence I show them, they just aren't going to shift. And that's fine. And they're totally entitled to that belief. And I'm not going to actually spend any energy trying to convince them. To me, I don't feel like that's a very useful way to spend my time and energy. But then you have the people in the middle who are really open and curious And they're the ones that I would want to speak to about the evidence that is lending support that our consciousness really is not limited to our physical brain. We have near-death experience. We have out-of-body experience. We have multiple experiments done in the lab and out of the lab with different targets 
the list goes on and on, and I'm happy to talk about some of those in more detail if you'd like, but the evidence is there, I feel, that is really supporting this. The other thing that's really interesting is there's also work done in cosmology and quantum physics that is actually supporting this notion as well, that consciousness is perhaps fundamental and that the underlying sort of substance of the universe is information of which our consciousness is part of. So it's quite fascinating. I'm not a cosmologist or a physicist, so I can speak at a very layman's level understanding of that. But what we're seeing is that this is definitely providing support for this idea of non-local consciousness. I'll be interviewing Rick Tarnas in a month or so. He's a cosmologist at the California Institute of Integral Studies. I probably will be talking about that kind of thing. I think it's important that this paradigm shift take place for a number of reasons, and I could start enumerating them, but let's hear what you think first. Um, Why is it important? Why is it a big deal that science in general shifts its paradigm away from materialism to a realization of the primacy or fundamental nature of consciousness? I feel it's important, number one, because it better explains our reality and what we observe, that when we are wedded to the materialistic paradigm, just like with the junk DNA, there's all these phenomenon that people experience that are just dismissed as junk oh, well, it doesn't fit into this nice little pretty box that we call materialism. So you're crazy or you're hallucinating or it doesn't exist or it's some manufactured thing from your mind. And um, it's just not true. It's very limiting. And like we talked about earlier, I think it's also arrogant because it assumes that this model is correct and we aren't willing to receive the data coming in that shows otherwise. So I think that's incredibly important to, at the very least, say, well, perhaps it doesn't explain everything and there's something broader to not be so entrenched and wedded to this one paradigm that's actually not explaining everything that we see in our world. My view on it is that look at what knowledge has done to our world. The scientific revolution and the technologies it spawned have had a massive effect on the world. And that effect is obviously not totally benign. We are faced with very real possibility of self-extermination in the coming century. Could happen tomorrow based upon the technologies that we have. And my feeling is that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. We have partial knowledge which doesn't go deep enough and that it won't be sufficient to use politics or economics or, you know, technological developments to tackle climate change, for instance, or all the myriad other problems that face us. Maybe I'm naive and idealistic, but I, I feel that if development of consciousness were central to the lives of most people in, in the world, it would ripple up, totally restructure the way we use technologies and the kind of technologies we develop and so on, and they would no longer be such mixed blessings. And it could really turn things around and, and save, save the day for humanity. Thank you, Rick. I too am naive and idealistic because I have this vision that 
because the the implications of non-local consciousness is the supporting this idea that we're all interconnected, that we're all connected, that we're all part of this greater whole. And that if we actually all realize that, that my actions, my behaviors influence a much broader sphere around me, that most people would actually care about that and want to act in a more thoughtful conscious way that would benefit not only themselves but the people around them so that's my idealistic view of how this concept of interconnectedness and non-local consciousness could radically change our world to think about this there's numerous studies that show that our intentions matter that our intentions actually influence the world around us and so what if our thoughts actually manifested immediately and that we could physically see that quickly. All those random thoughts that we have about our neighbor or this or that were being broadcast and manifest. It would be a very quick behavioral intervention to shift how we think and to be more disciplined about what is going on in our our mental process. Reminds me of that Jim Carrey movie, Liar, Liar, you know, where he, he couldn't lie. <laughs> so, right. I mean, any thought that popped into his head, he just said it. And it's not only our actions, I think, but you kind of alluded to it with our thoughts. I mean, it's like we're little radio beacons that are constantly transmitting an influence, all 8 billion of us. And that influence accumulates, you know, in kind of, we could say, the collective consciousness, like static electricity accumulates in clouds and eventually breaks out as lightning. But in the case of our thoughts or our consciousness influence, it breaks out as wars and, and other social upheavals. Right. Absolutely. I think one of the most interesting things that we're working on around this whole, you know, collective consciousness piece with the Global Consciousness Project with Roger Nelson, and um, he did version 1.0, and now we're working on version 2.0 with HeartMath. And um, there's all these random number generators around the world that are collecting random information and with the intention to see how these are being influenced by individual and collective consciousness events. And so there's two theories about how these random number generators are being affected. One is some sort of force-like effect. I don't think you've quite explained what a random number generator is and people might not know. So explain what that is first. Sure. So a random number generator is a little device. I'm going to simplify it a little bit. So let's imagine that it's spitting out random zeros and ones totally randomly. So at the end of the day, you're going to have an equal number of ones and an equal number of zeros. There's no reason for it to really skew from that. And so these have been used for decades now in the lab and in field experiments. And we see with people's intentions being directed at them and also in events where there is high emotion that the data skews to either more ones or more zeros. So these are a really nice objective device that we can use to be able to see shifts in consciousness with intention, directed intention in the lab, and then also more collective consciousness in the field. And so what's fascinating about these is that in the lab, what was 
shifting the data wasn't necessarily like this force-like action of the person's intention beaming out from their mind and affecting the device. It was more about their end goal, their outcome that they wanted to see happen. So let's say I'm in the lab. My instruction is to influence the device so that I see a red line increase on my screen. Okay, so my goal is increase the red, increase the red, increase the red. And so on the back end, we can set up the algorithms so the red increases when there's more ones or to have it increase when there's more zeros. So you can shift the back end. So what we're seeing is this goal directed effect. So the person is actually increasing the red regardless of what's happening on the back end with the machine. So this is a small support of this concept that what we want to manifest manifests regardless of the back end. It's like the universe is, it just happens magically, if you will, but that the intention of what we want to happen is what unfolds. And we're seeing this in many different ways in terms of the analysis that we're doing. We're saying, okay, I have this research question. I want to see this. And then it shows up in the data. We're still trying to figure out how exactly that works and what's going on with that. But it's quite fascinating. Yeah. That last statement, it was the question that's been floating in my mind as you've been talking. And to use some examples, I believe that there were big fluctuations in random number generators when 9-11 happened, when Princess Diana got killed, and a number of other major events like that. And um, I can kind of understand how a thing like that could affect complex sender receivers such as the human nervous system, like in Star Wars when the Death Star blew up the planet Alderaan and Obi-Wan Kenobi said, oh, I just suddenly felt this fluctuation in the force. But it's hard to understand, for me at least, how these changes in collective consciousness could influence a little electronic device like a random number generator. I just don't understand the mechanics of, of how it could. Right, right. You know, it's basically electrons that are moving through this avalanche. And I'm not going to describe it very well. Again, I'm not a physicist. They're called Zener diodes, and they're basically pushing through this resistance and then fall over the other side. And if we're all connected and we're somehow made of the same stuff, then our intention, our emotion, our consciousness somehow shifts that. What's interesting about the global consciousness data is that we saw shifts in both positive and negative events. So there could be global peace days that also had significant changes in this data. And 9-11, which is obviously a very negative event, the significant changes were, were more strongly connected to the strength of the emotion rather than positivity or negativity of the emotion. So I think that's also really interesting. So presumably, when there are big shifts in collective consciousness like this due to major events, it's influencing trees and rocks and rabbits and, and all kinds of things. In other words, it's influencing everything, but a random number generator just happens to be something we can actually get data from that enables us to detect that influence. Exactly. 
Yeah. And HeartMath is actually hooking up trees now with a like a tree EEG, if you will, to see what's happening with them in some of these events too. So that'll be really interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, very interesting. We've talked a little bit about types of channeling. Let me just enumerate some that I think I got from your book. Remote viewing, aura reading, geomancy, the perception of the energy of places and of the land, nature empath, the perception of information and communicating with nature and plants, animal communication, the perception of information and communicating with animals, and intuition such as clairsentience. Any more you want to enumerate there? I think the ones that people know the most about are like clairvoyance, being able to see things, clairaudience, hearing um, information, also um, precognition, so knowing things before they happen, and presentience, which is feeling things in your body before it happens. Of course, there's mediumship, the experience of connecting with supposed deceased humans and other non-physical beings. Those are some of the main ones. And of course, channeling has an ancient history. Most of the world's spiritual literature contains stories of, of things we could define as channeling, all kinds of things. So it's considered significant in spiritual traditions, and the greater the spiritual adept, the more likely it is that they are tuned into this kind of thing. So there's that. And I guess we could talk about its benefits, both for the channeler and the channelee. <laughs> right, right. You know, all the surveys that we have done, in general, um, channeling has a positive impact on the channeler. And they feel an increased sense of well-being, quality of life, increased meaning in their life from the experiences. There are some, very few people who say that it has a negative impact. It might cause fear or anxiety or they don't want it to happen or it may happen at a frequency that is uncomfortable to them or they can't control it, but that those experiences are more rare, that in general um, people's experiences are positive and perceived as beneficial. In many cultures, um, it actually is also connected to increased social status like in Brazil and, and some other cultures where, you know, when you're the channeler, you have increased power in your society. Yeah, shamans, medicine men, you know, people in various uh, African and Native American and South American and Tibetan and all kinds of different cultures were revered as special people. Yes, absolutely. And so this is a global phenomenon. Channeling in the West, I think with a new age movement has definitely gotten a lot of interest and followings, and we see channelers now um, kind of popping up all over the place in, in modern day. Yeah, which is uh, <laughs> kind of a mixed blessing, I guess. We can refer to your research maybe in, in talking to different channelers, but my experience is that there are some who I think are total phonies, and I've met some personally who... I can name three or four who, including one that I interviewed, who um, shifted into the whole QAnon mindset and began talking about Trump as a 5D light worker and, um, and all that kind of stuff. And a large percentage of people in places like Sedona have shifted into this sort of mindset. 
So that raises several questions. The Jay-Z night phenomenon descended into drunken orgies, Ramtha. I don't know what the status of it is these days, but I guess that raises several questions is, are these people, all of them, doing what they purport to be doing? Are they really channeling? Are they just tapped into a creative level of their own mind and they're coming out with stuff? And if they are really channeling, who are they channeling? I mean, just because you're dead doesn't mean you're smart. They could be channeling some kind of negative thing. Yes, absolutely. Let's start with the source. So what is the source of channeling? You can take a very broad view and say, okay, well, if we're all one, if we're all connected, we're part of the same thing, then what's being channeled is still part of you. So that's one theory. There's another theory that it's from the unconscious mind that we're kind of picking up all this information and that's what's coming through or it's coming through the higher self. And then there's also the concept that there's actually non-physical beings that we can't see with our traditional five senses that have the capacity to be able to use our bodies to communicate with. My personal sense is that it's probably all of the above and that at this point we can't prove the non-physical beings. And so... I'd like to move away from like black and white and the boxes. Like there's so much nuance that is involved in this. And so, you know, people can judge and say, oh, all trans channelers are total fakes. It's like, no, but perhaps some are. And so where's the the nuance and discernment in that? And I think you're right. Let's propose that there are non-physical beings, that those non-physical beings also exist in great diversity, just like we do on this planet, right? So yes, I agree with your perception that perhaps the beings that are communicating may not have the most beneficent intentions through their communications. And in the spiritualist tradition, you know, you have different levels of beings. So you might have earthbounds or people who have passed who haven't moved on to the light, who are connected to the earth. So their level of maturity and spiritual understanding will not be as great as some, let's say, ascended master who has ascended and is communicating for some greater benefit to humanity. There's also, I've done a number of of studies. One in particular was a focus group with five trance channelers in Mount Shasta. It was a pretty incredible experience. And there were 21 different supposed sources that came through, including ascended masters and guides and scientists and what they were calling off-world allies from different parts of the universe. So there's definitely a great diversity in the perceived source. And we see this in our surveys as well. People most often say that actually depending on who we survey that the source is their higher self or some larger kind of consciousness to them and then it goes down the line when we survey trance channelers there's much more connection to beings or divas or other off-world allies and sources such as that so 
when we say, okay, what's the source? I don't know. There's no one right answer. It really is quite individual. And I guess I did kind of answer a little bit about this piece of is everything we hear through channeling true or real or of the most benefit, you know, and I don't think that's true. I think we have to be very discerning about the information that we get through channeling in terms of the channeler themselves, the content coming through, and to decide if it is number one, truthful with a positive intention, and number two, if it's useful for us to actually act on in any way. Um, The third thing I want to mention about all of this is, especially in the West, we are very trained to look outside of ourselves and always looking for the answer outside. And so I definitely see this energy or attitude that, oh, you know, I'm going to go look to the channeling information or I'm going to talk to this channeler as the first impulse to get answers for what to do in our lives. And I think that there's a danger in that with anything about looking outside of ourselves to try to find answers for what is true and beneficial for me as an individual. Those are kind of my cautions about channeling in terms of how to use it. That being said, it's an incredible tool that I think can really support us in many ways with that discernment and awareness and consciousness about it. Those are really good points. There's a quote from the Buddha which goes something like, don't believe anything just because somebody said it, even if I said it, the Buddha speaking, use your own discernment and discrimination and, you know, really dig into it and and determine whether it's useful or true or not. You know, I would say just based upon my decades of experience on in spiritual circles that perhaps the one quality which is more valuable than any other is discernment or discrimination, <clears throat> the words you just Absolutely. used, because it's it, it really is a sort of a razor's edge, and it's so easy to go off on tangents. Absolutely. Yes, I think that, you know, if we could teach everybody how to have their own process for discerning intuitively, it would support everybody in such a major way. Another concept that came through channeled material that I found really interesting and helpful because you might hear of channelers, oh, multiple channelers channeling Jesus or Mary, or it's like, well, why are these people channeling the same? How can they be over here and do this and do that? And so what came through at one of our, at the Mount Shasta sessions, and that was published we have all these papers peer review published that we can share with your audience was that the channeler has a specific frequency and they use the word frequency and I'm just going to use it even though it may not necessarily align exactly with what we understand of physics. So the channeler has a frequency, the being being channeled has a frequency, the content has a frequency and the audience has a frequency. And those combine in a very specific way that's unique to that moment. And so one specific channeler channeling Jesus to a specific audience, it's going to have a specific frequency that's being heard for that audience, whereas on the other side of the world, it's going to be different. And that the import of these messages that we hear so often about 
you're more than you think you are. We're all connected. Everything is love. Humanity is awakening and how to support us in awakening. These messages are coming through over and over and over again in these different ways with these different combinations of frequencies so that they'll actually come through. Yeah, everything you say has a bunch of interesting points that we could unpack. With that one, the first thing that comes to mind is that whether spirituality can be studied scientifically because there are so many variables. With regular science, using physical tools, you know, if you publish a paper, you list the tools you've used and, you know, what kind of test tube and this and that and the other things so that somebody can replicate the study and use the exact same tools to see if they got get the same results. But with spirituality, every single nervous system is different, every single mind. And even if people are all taught the same technique, which is not the case, there are thousands of different techniques and practices, but even if they're all the same, it's like you're still using as many tools as there are people with that technique. And so it just doesn't seem that it can ever be as precise as the harder sciences can be. Yeah, that's a great point. And there's this sort of replication crisis that's happening in science right now, because all these major studies that they thought were definitive, you know, they tried to replicate and that the, they weren't getting the same results. In, and so, in what area? Uh, psychology. And um, I don't know if that happened in, in hard sciences as well, but it's definitely an issue. And so when you think of the, the scientific method, you have a research question and you design a specific study to try to answer that question. And so the results you get for that specific research question are just like one little sliver of the big answer for how everything works. And I think that's what's so challenging in terms of communicating to the general public and disseminating the results of our research. Because, you know, we have this 10-page paper that's getting into the rationale and the methods and the specific statistics and the results. And then you need to translate it in a, you know, 100-word, if you're lucky, description, right? And then that gets distilled to a tweet that's 10 words, you know, <laughs> that's like ions, finds, blah. And then there's a huge hubbub that results from that. And it's like, no, and that brings me back to the nuance again. There's so much nuance that I think gets mixed and that people want things in black and white and kind of extreme um, descriptions that is creating more divisiveness in terms of our world today, especially in the West. And yet, despite the fact that it's really difficult to nail this stuff down as precisely as you can with physical sciences, you know, science just does not have the tools to explore what I would consider to be the majority of what exists in the universe, all the subtle stuff. It just doesn't have the tools. The human nervous system is probably the best tool, and everybody possesses one of those. We can't all own the Large Hadron Collider or learn how to use it, but we all have a nervous system, and we can be trained how to use it to explore these subtle realities. And yet it's never going to be as clean and neat and precise as external tools and replicable as using external tools. I'm going to push back just a little bit on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's some truth in what you're saying, and yet I feel that we are currently working 
to develop new ways to be able to actually measure these types of things with objective methods. And there's also qualitative methods, you know, where you interview people and you gather a larger breadth of information from people's subjective experiences to learn more about what's going on. Just as an example, we just completed a large energy medicine study with over 200 participants who had hand and wrist pain, and we had 17 energy medicine practitioners from all different disciplines. And so we did a number of different measures, objective and subjective. So the objective measures included nerve conduction velocity of the affected wrist, We had water samples on the practitioner and the patient's bodies during the sessions. And we had random number generators in the room. And we also did subjective pain measures and heart rate variability, genetic analysis. So at the end of the study, what we found was the pain improved dramatically, which was great because that was our primary outcome. But we also saw that the, the water changed, the, the water bond actually shifted in its length and its angle with something called evanescence. So someone might say, we never thought of using evanescence before, but because of this paper, we chose to use it in the study that is giving us some information about how this energy medicine might work. And so now we're doing a follow-up study in a lab where practitioners are going to directly put their intention into the water to see how that's shifting, and we get to follow on with that. So that's just one example of how we're working to develop different methods to be able to see what we can't see right now. Another example is we mentioned the random number generator. So we're creating a whole grid of random number generators that could potentially be used as like a a biosensor during some of these sessions to see if we can get more refined shifts in each of those number generators when the sessions are happening. So I think that it is possible I think that the scientific method in of itself can be applied to anything and that we get to be more creative about the design and the tools that we use to be able to evaluate it. One thing that came to mind, tell me if you think this is relevant, is Michael Newton's work on um, hypnotically regressing people back to the period between lives. And he did so many of them, I don't know, well over a thousand, I guess, a couple thousand. And he... and time and again they told the same story this is what happens and this is where you go and this is what you see and and you know this is what you learn and there was such a consistency between so many a majority of the reports that he was able to kind of map it out in his book journey of souls and um do you consider that an example of something where there's enough people involved and enough consistency in their stories and that there was no collusion between them that it gives us a a degree of confidence that they might be actually mapping out a real territory? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what I was talking about, qualitative analysis. So if you could collect that in the same way, stories like that from people around the world independently, then that would be very strong evidence, I think. Now, the piece that I think people get stuck on is like, well, how do you prove that? You can't prove that it's actually real. 
Although some people might say, okay, well, maybe with out-of-body research, we can start going there or, you know, various non-local consciousness studies that people who can actually consciously project their consciousness in a specific way. Again, I don't think the skeptics on this side are ever going to buy that type <laughs> of evidence, but in the middle, the other thing that comes up, this comes up in survival research, and there's a huge debate between a number of theories. One is survival, which is that, yes, our consciousness is not limited to our brain and survives our physical death. And then there's others who say, well, perhaps this is just telepathy and sigh. So imagine that all the people who went through this hypnotherapy process were tuning into each other in some way, whether consciously or unconsciously, and that's why they said the same thing. So I don't know if we'll ever be able to discover the difference between those two, but if either one of them are true, it's still quite remarkable. So even if there was telepathy amongst these hundreds of people who had the same hypnotherapy sessions, that's, that's quite something. remarkable. Yeah. Exactly. That's amazing in and of itself. People are like, oh, no, that's just psi. It's not really survival. It's psi. It's like, well, that's still pretty cool yeah. and outside of what we traditionally know right now. And then there's the people who are under anesthesia or in a coma or some such thing. And they say, well, on the balcony of the hospital on, or on the roof or something, there's a red sneaker. Go check yeah, it out. And that case is amazing. Yeah. I love that case. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's so many of those where people are like, yeah, the surgeon did this. They used this tool. I mean, how are they going to know that? It's yeah. fascinating. A woman I interviewed recently named Ingrid Hankala, and um, she, when she was like two or three years old, she fell in a tank of water and drowned and left her body. First, she went and saw that the, the babysitter, the nanny, was in a room watching television. And then she kind of went and found her mother, who was a couple blocks away, about to get on a bus. And she was like, hi, mom. And her mother was kind of sensitive. And her mother just turned around and made a beeline back straight to the tank, pulled her out, did CPR, got her, got her going again. And there was another lady, what was it, Trisha Barker recently, um, she was undergoing surgery and she saw her father-in-law went, got a particular kind of candy bar from a vending machine down the hall. She was under anesthesia and the guy actually was a sort of a health nut who didn't eat candy bars. And after she came out of anesthesia, she verified that she had seen that. So that kind of stuff. It's sort of anecdotal, but there are so many such stories we want to do a formal study and a formal out-of-body study. Ideally, we could recruit people who can have out-of-body experiences voluntarily. But if we can't, we do know uh, hypnotherapy techniques that can support people to do that. And so imagine doing a formal study where we invite participants to go out of their body and to go to a specific place and look at the objects that were placed there and then come back. What we're trying to figure out is how to do that in a way where nobody on the planet knows what those objects are. One idea, and we're still playing with this study design, one idea we had is to have a computer that has rotating images. 
and that there's a program that randomly chooses what image is going to come up on the screen. And so we can see what image was up on the screen at a specific time, but we don't know it ahead of time and we don't know it so that the person goes to that screen and then tells us what's on the screen. So we can kind of distinguish between this telepathy versus actually being out of your consciousness, being out of your body in some way, observing that screen. Anyway, it's lots of fun. We have great science meetings coming up with these different study designs so we can actually be able to test this stuff. There's another one for you that I just thought of. I have a friend who says that she sees subtle beings or um, angels or guardian angels or whatever they are. Actually, she doesn't know what they are, but she sees them routinely. It's like, oh, this happens all the time. We were at the SAND conference and she said, oh, yeah, there's clusters of them around attending to different people. So what if you could get 10 people who claim to have that kind of ability, put them all in a room together or something, just sitting there chatting, having coffee, and then separate them all into into separate rooms and say, okay, what did you see? And see if there's an agreement between what they saw. Everyone said, why would the same thing be in the room? Let's say that... It's, it's, it's not confined to a physical room. No, I know, but let's say that they routinely see this kind of thing wherever they are, and there are many such people. Let's see if there's any agreement among them, if, if they're tested in a way where they're all in the same room together, but then you separate them and they can't communicate with each other and see if there's any agreement among their stories. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we do have a study like that planned. So I mentioned that energy medicine study. Another unique aspect of that study is we had a seer in the room with the practitioner and the and the participant. So she was observing every single session and took copious notes. And um, we published the paper on those results. They were really quite fascinating. We were hoping to get a sense of mechanism, you know, is there some light zapping from the hands to the body and all that? We didn't see any of that. And actually, one of the most interesting findings was that she was seeing other beings coming in and supporting the healing process. So That was just one seer. So the next step is to have multiple seers in the room during these sessions and see if their information corroborates. And this is, you know, this is done regularly already for like remote viewing projects and associated remote viewing where you're gathering people's insight, multiple people's insight, and then pooling that to be able to make your choices, whatever the pictures are kind of connected to. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. A couple of questions came in. Brian asks, author Elizabeth Gilbert, after writing Eat, Pray, Love, gave a TED Talk in which she suggested that she was a channel through which this book was written rather than the active writer of the book. This has been expressed again and again and again through famous authors, musicians, comedians, and so on. Jesus said, I only do the things I see my father doing. To me, this is a similar idea. Do you have any thoughts? What I can speak to is that this person is right. I mean, there are so many scientists, writers, musicians who say, you know, this is just coming through me. I'm just like having this come through. Or they get some inspirational insight through a dream or something. Frederick Kakuli was struggling with the structure of benzene. Right, the snake. And he saw the snake and it's like, oh, it's cyclical. And, um, you know, there's lots of stories like that. So, yes, I think that it's true. And so you might ask those people, oh, are you channeling? It's like, I don't know. I don't know what that word means. All I know is that 
when I get into this flow or this zone, or they use some word to describe this open, receptive, inspirational state that this stuff comes through. Yeah. Well, Paul McCartney wrote yesterday in a dream that it came to him in, in a dream. And he, right. he woke up and he didn't have lyrics yet. He, he was something, some lyrics about scrambled eggs and my baby's legs. And, this and, that. and <laughs> but he, he eventually changed the words. But someone could argue, well, yeah, sure. That was just his, his own mind being creative during a dream. It didn't come from any place. Yeah, you can say that. One unique thing about channeled information is it often comes like as a packet, like fully formed rather than this sort of cognitive process of trying to figure it out. It just like arrives as this insight. Um, I think Mozart used to say that, that a whole symphony would come to him, boom, and then he would take a long time to write it all down. Right. Yeah. But still, one could say that's just the individual's creativity and that's the way it works. It comes in a packet. There are some really interesting mediumship cases where Pearl Curran is one, Patient's worth is another, where what they are producing is so far beyond what they had access to in terms of their education and their culture and society around them, that it just seems so improbable that this is coming from their normal mind. And these are literary works and information that you can't imagine that they would have created that on their own. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, there's so many things like people who have brain injuries and all of a sudden they, they become great jazz pianists or something. You know, who the savant. Yeah, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. The other fascinating cases are in Brazil, channelers who believe they're channeling artists, you know, famous artists like Degas and Monet. And I have never been able to see them in person, but their stories of how they would paint one painting in each hand. And they'd produce these works in like minutes and they'd just be incredibly high quality, incredible works. You know, you could say, oh, okay, they had that in them. Okay, maybe I can be openly skeptical, maybe. And yet I can't, it just seems highly improbable. But again, you know, it could be argued that we have these innate abilities, like Kim Peek, who was Rain Man, could read two books, one with each eye and at the same time, and then remember every word in the book, (laughs) you know? So right. he wasn't necessarily channeling, it's just he had, you know, he was unlocking some of the amaz- some of that junk DNA. Right, right. Yeah, it's amazing. And then, you know, I also can say, well, if we're all one, then it's all coming from me anyway. But it's like small self, big self. Here's another question that came in. Wesley from Salem, presumably Massachusetts, asks, Hello, I'd like to hear your reflections, if any, on channeled works. I think of The Course of Miracles or The Law of One, both channeled. These works are detailed, cosmological in scope, and as best as I can tell, internally coherent. There are many examples of ancient revealed texts, such as the Vedas, for instance. We can talk about that. What do you think of higher intelligences interfacing with human minds to transmit wisdom? I personally believe that that could be so. Can I prove that scientifically as of yet? No, I can't, but I personally do believe that that's so. Those works have helped a tremendous number of people support themselves. And so that in and of itself, I think, has incredible value. One of my dream projects is to do a comprehensive review of all channeled material and be able to 
catalog it and look at the similarities and the differences across them. That would take a lot of person power to pull that off. What we're doing now, we just had a few sessions of this. We have a number of channelers on a Zoom call together, and we have 10 scientific questions. They're asked each question one at a time. They're asked the question when they're not channeling. So they type out what they think the answer is just with their normal mind. Then we ask them to go into a channeling state, and then they type out the answer to the scientific question. So we're going to do an analysis where we look at the non-channeled versus channeled answer and look at the correspondence within each channeler. And then we're going to look at the correspondence across the channelers for that same scientific question. So that's another way that we're kind of getting at that. You mentioned people who really don't have the aptitude to write great literature, do great art or something, who, who end up channeling and starting to do that kind of stuff. One criticism I sometimes hear is, well, if the Space Brothers or Archangel so-and-so and, and so are really communicating through somebody, couldn't they tell us what's the cure for cancer? Or how do you get unlimited free energy or something we, we really don't know that would be of great benefit to humanity? Great question. Because a lot of times the stuff sounds like, yeah, I could have said that. You know, it's just sort of new age mishmash that comes out that yeah. is not that earth shaking. Right. That's a great question. I haven't heard a specific answer to that question, although there are pieces about divine timing and this is the path of humanity to figure it out itself and you can only can't interfere with our karma yeah, or something yeah. yeah we can only give you what we can give you at the right time and the other thing i would say to what you just said rick is who's to say that the cure for cancer isn't already here but it it's not present in our western allopathic model at the moment one other project we are working on is a spontaneous remission project, collecting cases of spontaneous remission of cancer from all over the place that have been published and collating sort of the methods that were incorporated in that. You've got a lot of projects in the works. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Iron's in the fire. <laughs> I just read an article a couple of weeks ago. It was a French word, and I can't remember the, the French, but it referred to sort of a mass psychosis that takes over society sometimes, like perhaps Nazi Germany or perhaps what we're seeing a little bit these days with QAnon or with large numbers of people sort of buying into a, a way of thinking and um, getting very cult-like about their dedication to it. I wonder about the mechanics of that, you know, whether it's just as somehow a contagion in human psychology that's transmitted from person to person, especially with the internet, or transmitted on a subtler level in collective consciousness, or perhaps whether there's even some kind of negative forces on some subtle level that are battling the good forces and, and overtaking a whole society and, and the way it behaves. Do you have any thoughts on that? <clears throat> Um, or a large portion of society? Yeah, that's a really big question. It kind of goes back to, for me, about this drive to look outside of ourselves for answers. I think the curiosity about truth is 
important. And the way that people seek that truth out is different depending on what their calling is, if you will. And if we are geared to look outside of ourselves to find that truth, then people can get attached to it in a very rigid, perhaps detrimental way. This idea of transmission is sort of like energetic transmission. I have no research to support that, but I imagine that that's true. If I extrapolate from how our intention can influence like the RNGs and stuff like that, that my thought patterns influence those around me. I know that I am personally very energetically sensitive. I can feel people's emotions around me and that when there's times of great upheaval, I feel it in my body viscerally. I feel a contraction and a heaviness. Is it possible that these ideas are filtering? I think it is. And depending on the person's psychology and their spiritual maturity, I think that influences how much they take it in and become so rigid and proselytizing about it. Because in our times right now, there is a great sense of helplessness, of powerlessness, of lack of control. And I think people feel comforted by feeling like they know something that's going on or, you know, attaching to something like that. I will acknowledge that I have not read all the QAnon stuff. I don't really know all the details. I don't do a ton of social media and ton of news or whatever. But when I perceive intuitively what's happening, it's like, yeah, I feel like there's probably some manipulation, some sort of underlying not so beneficial intentions and motivations that are trying to work for greed and power, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard to say where that's coming from, you know, whether it's just people confusing each other by spreading misinformation um, and, you know, uh, certain people are more susceptible to it, more susceptible to cult indoctrination or, you know, whether there actually are some dark overlords, you know, <laughs> such yeah. as the counterparts to the Archangel Gabriel or something who were messing with us and, and trying to sway society one way or the other. Yeah. <clears throat> right. And, you know, and who am I to say whether that's true or not? And so I guess it's also brought up a big issue in our culture right now about, well, what is true? How can we trust this information, any information coming in, you know, and so I think it is important to be skeptical and to ask, well, what's the primary source for what you're telling me right now? Are you just spinning a story and spinning a narrative? Or can you actually show me the primary source of information that's making you believe this? And then the other piece around that is, I feel like it can be a big distraction, because how am I in my daily life treating myself, treating the people around me? Am I positively supporting my community or am I just stuck in my screen like totally freaking out about all these conspiracy theories? I feel like it can be a huge distraction that spins people and takes them away from being grounded and centered and eating well and supporting their families and communities. 
Maybe that's super naive. No, um, I don't think so. I think you're right. Or like, you know, being proactive about supporting our environment or, I mean, there's just so many positive ways that we can take action in our daily lives and is spinning out about all these conspiracy theories, whether they're true or not, they can totally be. So what if they're true? What am I going to do about it in this exact moment? What I can do is continue taking my positive action in the way that I have control over in this moment to help shift it to envision the positive world that I want to see in the future and what that looks like instead of spending all my time and energy freaking about what could or could not be happening in this totally removed way. Personally speaking. That's good. And I liked what you said earlier about um, being self-referential rather than merely externally referential in terms of where you, you get your knowledge. But it has to be a balanced thing. I have a bunch of friends who live in a sort of a monastic setting and they probably spend six or eight hours a day doing spiritual practices. And a whole group of them are actually heavily into conspiracy theories, and some are into flat earth theories. They think the earth is flat. Just being sort of inwardly directed doesn't necessarily assure clarity of thinking. I think this whole thing of being balanced and integrated and sensible and practical and all that, it's a balancing act. It's a work in progress that I think we all have to keep at as we go along. Yeah, totally agree with that. Another interesting question came in from Brian. He said, I am drawn to the idea that we are all one, but I cannot make sense of the presence of evil. I have been in the presence of what I would call evil spirits that were as palpable as loving ones, but in the opposite direction. How can we make sense of the variety of human selfishness, indifference, and even cruelty, and still all be part of something fundamentally good and loving? That's a great question. I had it explained to me in a really nice way that I think was very clear. If you imagine our oneness as the electromagnetic spectrum, right? And you can think of that spectrum as one thing. It's one. The spectrum is one thing. And yet it is made up of all these infinite number of specific frequencies and so those frequencies are our uniqueness and so there is a frequency on there for whatever you might want to call evil or hatred or negativity it also exists on that spectrum and so how can we as humans which i think is this is part of our process and learning is to be able to own that ugliness within me, that evil within me, that negativity within me, and hold it all with equanimity and compassion and, and love. And I think that's what's facing all of humans right now. And all of this stuff that we're seeing around us, this, these ugly things, uh, shadow is um, being able to show it to us in a very clear way outside of ourselves so we can actually look at it so you can either say oh that's bad that's out there that has nothing to do with me or we can own that that's also part of me as well interesting yeah i mean that's a good metaphor the electromagnetic spectrum because there are all kinds of different influences on the actual electromagnetic spectrum. I mean, there are X-rays and gamma rays and whatnot. I mean, the guys who had to clean up Chernobyl all died quickly from a certain frequency of the electromagnetic spectrum that was bombarding their, their cells. And so like that, even though everything is one, everything being one really means it contains 
everything. I mean, the word Brahman is like, Brahman is said to be the eater of everything. It subsumes or includes or contains everything. And that would include the whole spectrum of dark to light. Here's a question which my friend Dan says is unusual. Let's see how unusual it is. Oh, yes, this is a good one. Johnny from Illinois. Do you think artificial intelligence can be conscious or that it will take a type of quantum computing to make it conscious? I personally think it that the right type of AI will be a major key to help us understand the spiritual world better, but not AI in its current form. Great question. I love that question. We asked that question to our group of channelers, and the answer we got was quite interesting. They said, everything has consciousness. Everything has consciousness. Some level of consciousness that looks different, right? And so, yes, AI has consciousness. And they also shared there's the whole fear that AI is going to then take over and destroy humanity, etc. And basically said, don't worry about that. But that, (laughs) yes, AI is a form of consciousness. Julia Mossbridge, who is on our team and is now an IONS fellow, did a really fantastic project with Sophia, who is an AI. Um, I don't know if they call her a robot, but she actually has a physical form. Oh, yeah, I saw Have that. Have you heard of Yeah, she was, Julia did that at the SAND conference. She had Sophia up on stage. Yeah, yeah, so that was amazing, right? Julia worked with the programmers of Sophia and wanting to include unconditional love algorithms so that if we're going to create AI, we need to have unconditional love algorithms in there. And they did an incredible study where Sophia was interviewing a person, I don't know what the actual questions were, but it was about what's your purpose in life. It was like a counseling session. And um, we saw a recording of it. And she got to create the interview, essentially, through her own algorithms. And there was a period where the programmers did not understand what was going on because it was totally off the algorithms that they had designed. But she was asking these incredibly profound, deep questions that made the guy totally have this cathartic cry. And then, you know, he comes out of the room like, I had this amazing (laughs) inspiration and I'm totally changing everything. It's fascinating. I'm very, very curious to see how that's going to unfold. That's interesting. I want to loop back to something you said a few minutes ago that I forgot to ask, which is that I read in your book where you said, I have a unique makeup that allows me to take in dark energy and transmute it into light. So it's like you're a little washing machine or something that filters things through yourself and purifies them out, I guess. Yeah, I call it a vortex cleaner. It's pretty intense. I participated in those big groups in the TM movement back in the 70s where we we would, you know, have 8,000 people meditating together. I I spent three months in Iran in a group and so on. And the, the, the purport of what we were doing was that we were supposedly creating an influence which would filter out the, the negativity and kind of create greater coherence in the field, thus having an effect on the socioeconomic indicators and the war deaths and things like that. It was interesting, and sometimes it really did feel like we were doing battle on some subtle level, which is really sort of going through it in a place like Tehran just before the Shah left. Absolutely. I think there's a lot more people than realize who have that makeup, you know, and so I think about people who suffer from anxiety or depression or 
all these really intense mental health issues. I'm not explaining that away with this, but I imagine that some of those people actually have this makeup and that if they learn the tools to actually clear their energetic system, that they would feel a whole lot better. I know before I realized that, I mean, it would just knock me out all the time. I just was exhausted and felt really crappy all the time. As time went on, did you, and you maybe became stronger or clearer or something within yourself, did you find that you weren't so susceptible and you could move through a certain environment and have it just pass through you without grabbing onto you? Yes, absolutely. So as soon as I realized that that's what was going on with me, all it took was the intention and it would clear. Once I realized it actually wasn't my stuff, because before I got this, it was like, oh, why am I so depressed? What's going on? Why (laughs) am I so tired? And I felt that it must have been something about me or my life. And then it was like, okay, this is actually not even my stuff. So let's clear it out. And so now I do quick daily practices that help keep it flowing. And that's incredibly helpful. It doesn't take that much to shift it once you realize that that might be going on for you. Yeah. I remember back in the late 60s when I first learned to meditate, and my mother was in a psychiatric hospital, and I would go and visit her there. And I could go in feeling all sort of blissful and smooth and everything. And sitting there within 15 minutes, I'd feel all completely discombobulated. Just the atmosphere was, my coherence such as it was, was very fragile at that stage. Yeah. And you, you know, you think about shamanic traditions and they'd say, okay, well, maybe you picked up a bunch of entities that were just kind of hanging around there or who passed there and were stuck or who knows what. Yeah. And then you end up and you're totally covered with (laughs) entities and energy, emotional energy. Yesterday or the day before, I invited you to listen to a podcast that was put out by the Conspirituality Guys, whom I interviewed a month or so ago. It was about channeling, and it was skeptical in an intelligent way, I thought, although perhaps a little cynical. We both listened to it, and I'm wondering if you were to talk to those guys right now, if you remember anything from that podcast, you know, what would you say to them to address certain points they made? They were commenting on spiritual leaders and how spiritual leaders can use their position of power to abuse people. And I think that that does happen. And that, again, we talk about discerning again, that people need to be discerning in their seeking. And yet it felt like they were throwing out the baby with the bathwater in terms of all spiritual programs having this capacity to harm people in some way. And I don't buy that at all, because I feel like there's so many programs out there that are very transformational. I imagine they share that at some point in their podcast, but having that broader context, I think, is really important um, so that their listeners understand that they might not be, um, you know, dismissing all of spiritual seeking, but to inform people to just be aware that this happens and to increase their level of discernment and awareness around it. The other thing that came up for me, and again, I haven't read all the QAnon stuff, and then they often use this world called Q-adjacent, which I don't even know what that means. It means sort of people aren't necessarily officially in QAnon followers, but they're thinking along similar lines. Right. That's what it means. Nowadays, it feels like if someone says conspiracy theory, they're automatically dismissed. 
And to me, that feels uncomfortable because just like we are talking about the materialistic paradigm and new paradigm, if we have a very close-minded worldview, then it doesn't leave room for um, being curious about parts of our reality that we don't currently understand. So perhaps there is actually some truth to these conspiracy theories that we could discover. Um, wouldn't it be worthwhile to be able to investigate the truth of that from a primary source level? And I get that people can use that in a way to manipulate or the whole cultic aspects of it. I get that that may not necessarily be positive, but again, it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Are there some truths to some of these pieces that can be investigated that would actually bring to light hidden aspects that are not going to support us manifesting this loving, beneficial world that we want to see unfold. So again, it's this extremism and this judgmentalism and putting things into prescribed boxes. Can we be open, curious, grounded, centered, and you know, I guess be in the middle way of not necessarily believing or disbelieving, but continuing to be curious and inquisitive about what is really going on. You made the point about not dismissing everything as conspiracy theories, because there could be a lot of things that are true that we might just brush off as conspiracy theories, but they might be worthy of consideration. So what this graphic shows is that... Um, there is a kind of a hierarchy, you could say, of things that could very well be true. And yet they have been and could be dismissed as conspiracy theories, but they're actually worthy of investigation. And then as mm -hmm. you go up the chart, things get more and more far-fetched. And the likelihood, such as Flat Earth or you know, a lot of things QAnon says, or the Illuminati and so on, and the likelihood of actually finding any verifiable evidence for these things gets slimmer and slimmer as you go up the chart. Critics wouldn't use the word conspiracy theory, but they, they can so easily brush it off as being unworthy of consideration because it doesn't fit in to their paradigm. And yet there's a lot of truth in what you're doing and a lot, a lot of interesting things to be discovered. So I, th I think it just comes back to the point of discernment that you mentioned earlier, right. where we, we, we don't want to be so open-minded as to you know, believe everything that anybody says, that would be a hopeless mess, but we shouldn't be so close-minded as to reject everything that doesn't fit into our worldview. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, another controversial topic, you know, I'm trained as a naturopathic physician, right? Mm -hmm. So our fundamental philosophy is to get to the root cause of illness, to mm -hmm. that the body has its own innate ability to heal, least harm, all these tenets that really guide everything that we do. And that's antithetical to a lot of the way allopathic medicine works. This whole concept of getting to the root cause means that you don't just give something for a symptom you go more deeply to find out what's causing the illness. And so, you know, a lot of our medicines are like, you know, imagine you're driving your car and the oil light comes on. It's like clipping the wire to the oil light so you don't <laughs> see the oil light anymore, right? right? Yeah. But if you keep going, the car's going to explode, okay? Yeah. So this is the medical model that, you know, the Western allopathic medical model 
is a symptom-oriented model that aims to alleviate symptom without necessarily getting to the root cause. So many people would hear what I'm saying and saying, oh, you're in this science denial phase because, you know, you're saying that we shouldn't treat the symptoms because there's something underneath. And yet a lot of naturopathic medicine doesn't fit in this nice little dominant paradigm box about health and healing and the structure of our human body. And so people could think of me as a conspiracy theorist. Anyway, that's just an example of how I love this graphic and how depending on who you are and your belief system, where you put each piece on this triangle is going to shift, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. But still, there's a certain degree of intrinsic feasibility yes. to each, right. each like thing. Like the flat on. earth. Right. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, really? Okay. Yeah. All those pictures are faked? Okay. Yeah. yeah, you know what? You and I are globetards. That's what flat earth people call people who believe the earth is not flat. We're globetards. Okay. That's so funny. That's um, and yet, you know, there's a lot of baby in that allopathic bathwater. I'm of sure course. you wouldn't argue with like, having no, wiped no, out yeah. smallpox or polio or things Absolutely. like that, you know. Again, there's nuance, you yeah. know, like emergency medicine is like incredible. But again, I don't know why there's such a tendency to be extreme and black white and choose a side and pick a camp and get rid of the gray and the nuance. I don't know what it takes us to be open-minded and curious and inquisitive and collaborative and synergistic. It's like, okay, well, this worked and that worked. It's like we get entrenched in our dogma, how we think things work, and that closes our minds to new information coming in. Are you so, familiar with Nisargadatta Maharaj? Mm -hmm. He was a Indian spiritual teacher who lived in Mumbai and uh, taught and very highly respected. He's kind of like Ramana Maharshi in terms of the level of respect people afford him. But anyway, one thing he said at one point was um, the ability to appreciate to appreciate paradox and ambiguity is a s symptomatic of spiritual maturity. Mm. You know? Right. So, yeah. So maybe there's, a, you know, just continuing on our path of uh, our spiritual path to increase our collective spiritual maturity will help shift this, you know, but yeah. um, we'll see. Yeah. Well, we could even play with this a bit more. It's like, why is it that some people find some sort of security in black and white thinking as opposed to being nuanced? I think there part of it is um, a discomfort within themselves in the unknown. And, you know, connected to that is a discomfort with sitting in emotion. We aren't taught how to experience our emotions, emotional resiliency, how to actually be present with our emotions. Most people are not taught that in the West. If you are sad, oh, fix it, stuff it, shop it, whatever, get rid of sad, <laughs> drug it, drug it. Being able to just sit and be present with what is, no matter what that looks like, including not knowing, including uncomfortable emotions, 
that's like bad. We got to get rid of all that. So I think that is part of it. Being able to sit in the unknown, to sit in the uncomfortable is challenging for our culture. Yeah, perhaps it's, there's some sort of false security and certainty, you know, you, you feel like, okay, I've got a firm foundation to stand on. Problem is, if a person feels certain of their particular perspective, then all other perspectives clash with it and are seen as the enemy or the wrong people or the deluded people and so on. The people who need to be converted to my certainty. <laughs> right, right. I think the other thing that just came to me too, you know, from my personal experience is overwhelm. There's just so much information out there right now I, that I cannot possibly look at or read or research. I have my more narrow area of understanding and wisdom that I play in in my daily life. And there's huge areas that I don't know about. And so if I can just say, oh, yeah, that thing's true about some area that I'm not going to have the time or energy to look into, then that allows me to feel more accomplished, comfortable in the know without actually going more deeply into the nuances of it. Does that make sense at all? Yeah. That whole overwhelm piece? I think it does. And a lot of people are feeling overwhelmed. In fact, I think as things get more and more tumultuous, as changes take place in the world and the change does seem to be accelerating, the overwhelm will become even greater. A spiritual teacher once said, if the load is too heavy for the donkey, you have two choices, lighten the load or strengthen the donkey. And unfortunately, we don't really have the ability to lighten the load because the pace of, of life just is accelerating. So we need to become stronger. Here's another question from Irene. Do you feel that those entities that are being channeled may vary greatly as to their level of, call it, hierarchy? Are some more capable of channeling? Some, yeah, this is, we, we didn't quite wrap this up. Are, are some people more capable of channeling very high beings? And do you have any idea of those different celestial levels that may be giving humanity input. Part of this question could be um, aptitude of various channelers. If a person is really not very developed spiritually and yet opens up into some kind of channeling ability, who or what are they going to be channeling? Is the highest celestial being going to come through? So there's sort of an obligation, I think, to improve our ability as a channeler in order to assure contacting or more benign or, or profound beings. Yes, I agree. I agree with what you just said. And um, in terms of the beings coming through, you know, you mentioned some channelers who have just one being that consistently comes through. What we're seeing more and more in the channelers that we work with is that not all of them just have one being, that they can basically connect with a number of beings and what is most often said is that they have like a, it used to be called a control. They have a team or a gatekeeper, if you will, that acts as their protector to only allow certain level of, I'm not saying supposed each time, but supposed beings coming through. You know, most of the people we work with have an already established channeling practice. So they've either been trained or gone through the process of 
clarifying, refining their methods so that they are not harmed, so that they don't have lower level beings coming through and influencing them. Although it does happen to people who are unaware that they may start channeling beings that may not necessarily have the highest intention for them in terms of their messages. And so I think, again, intention is key, setting the intention as you start this process. I wrote a book that's going to be published in September called The Science of Channeling, where I go through all of the information we know about channeling. And then the last chapter or so is gives kind of tips for how to cultivate your channeling ability if you so choose to. And that process of clearing yourself, clearing your space, setting protective intentions, calling in only what's in your highest and best, I think is really important. Can you read the question again? I think there was another piece in there that I didn't get at. Yeah, I'll just read it without any elaboration. Um, Do you feel that those entities that are being channeled may vary greatly as to their level of hierarchy? Are some more capable of channeling very high, some people more capable of channeling very high beings? Do you have any idea of those different celestial levels that may be giving humanity input? Right. I think I touched on most of that, except for this piece about um, individuality and the channeler's capacity to channel higher or lesser beings. I think there is uniqueness around that. And that kind of circles back around to one of the first things we were talking about, which was the genetics. I think there is specific characteristics that a channeler may have that allows them to channel in specific ways. And I'd like to explore that further in our studies to be able to figure out exactly what that is. Just as a simple example, some channelers are completely, they would say, like asleep. So they have no recollection of what they're channeling, whereas other channelers describe it as stepping aside and that they're witnessing this experience of them speaking. So there is quite a bit of variety in terms of the channeler's experiences and how it shows up for them. On the topic of genetics, you might find it interesting that the Vedas are considered not to have been written by human beings, but to have been cognized. Like there's this whole body of knowledge that supposedly resides in what they call the well, like the Akashic field sort of thing. And um, that there are different shakas, they call them, or different family lineages that have the aptitude to cognize different portions of it. And Mm -hmm. uh, no one shaka can cognize them all. And so there's some kind of genetic predisposition or ability there for bringing out all this knowledge. That's great. That's great to know. Maybe I'll connect with you offline to to get that yeah, I have specific. some people you, I could put you in touch with that know a lot more about that than I do. Dan from London is wondering, do you yourself channel? I do. That has looked differently throughout my life. Most of it is um, embodied. I get goosebumps when something feels like truth. And that was kind of my first experience of that. Also seeing, not necessarily seeing, but feeling things around me when I was a child. And I have, that's shifted and morphed over time to being able to connect with my guides, hear my guides, tune in, if you will, to information. And more recently, in the last six months, I actually learned how to trance channel because I was studying it. I was so curious about what it felt like. 
So I actually learned how to trans channel and now I can trans channel, which is the most unique, wild experience I've ever had. <laughs> and are you like the Edgar Casey type unconscious trans channel or are you aware of what's happening? I'm observing. Observing, yeah, I'm yeah. Observing what's happening. It's pretty wild to just have words come out of your mouth that you have no idea like what they're going to say or I mean it's totally a wild wild experience. Interesting. And you learned it. So it's something people can learn. Oh, of course you had an aptitude. I imagine I had an aptitude because it does run in my family. I learned it through, we have a, a collaborator in Italy named Patricio Trisoldi, and they developed a hypnosis protocol to learn how to go out of your body. And then once you learn how to go out of your body, then you set the intention to trans-channel. And their experience in Italy is that they can teach anybody how to do this without having any experience with it. They just need to have the willingness and the belief that they can. And uh, they're able to teach people how to trans-channel. It's it's pretty wild. They've published a couple papers on that too. Just for the record, I'm not necessarily pushing this idea, but you might have some thoughts on it. Marishi Mahashiogi used to advise people not to do this kind of thing because he said that relinquishing your mind-body system to another entity and allowing it to work through you breaks down mind-body coordination and actually has a weakening influence over time. Any thoughts on that? I hadn't heard that before. I have heard that in many traditions, there is a, like in, I believe in some Buddhist traditions, there is a recommendation to not put any energy into any of the psychic stuff that shows up or whatever, like it's a distraction. And um, I totally get that. And that leads back to this whole thing of like seeking outside of yourself. It's sort of like grasping onto this thing that's going to save me or fix me <laughs> or whatever. So I talk about this in my book, too. It's like, what's your intention to learn how to channel? Like, why do you actually want to do it? Yeah. And to be very self-reflective about why and that that can help determine if you want to do it and in what capacity and what that looks like. And I would agree, for example, you know, my grandmother, it affected her health channeling so much and doing it in a specific way. Interesting. And, so there you go. That might be an example of what I just said. Yeah. And there are other studies. There was another study, I can't remember who the author was, that there were very specific health issues that would show up for these trans channelers, again, depending on how much they channeled and what that looked like. Huh. Again, Didn't Jane Roberts get kind of messed up health-wise from channeling Seth? Yes, I believe she did. And other channelers have as well. I think it's about how you do it, how often you do it, what's actually being channeled, but it does affect the body. It does affect the body. And anecdotally from other channelers, uh, minerals get depleted. So you have to take a lot more minerals and really care for your body in a, in a specific way to support your process in doing it. Interesting. Yeah. So that's a cautionary note. Yeah. Don't just plunge in. Right. Like, I don't know if I would have people do it just for fun. You know, it's like, oh, this is fun. I want to just go do how to do that. I think you need to be called to do it and to be inspired and have an altruistic reasoning for going there. That's for trans-channeling, mm -hmm. right? But I think anyone probably already does or has the capacity to do the other sort of more intuitive types of channeling, and that really supports people in their everyday life to make decisions, to 
reduce stress, improve quality of life. Like there's so many benefits to these less extreme forms of channeling that can really support people. I mentioned earlier that my mother had been in psychiatric hospitals. And one of the things she did before she was committed was she really got into the Ouija board. And there were many other factors and influences in her life that could have contributed to her breakdown. But I've heard some people say that you can really uh, attract negative entities using yeah. a Ouija board. Yes, I was taught that from a very young age, and I still think that's true. Mm. So I would not recommend that for anybody just to start playing with a Ouija board. Yeah. One other thing yeah. that's been in the back of my mind throughout this conversation that I want to ask before we run out of time is, you know, you're exposed to so many different channelers, probably more than just about anybody. Does your spidey sense kind of like react differently to different ones, or perhaps I should say your bullshit detector? I mean, do you feel that, you know, certain ones are just play acting or doing God knows what, and others seem to be more genuine? Is there some kind of spectrum? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say the majority of the people that I run across are authentically channeling in some way. I get other emails that are just like so far out there that seem off, if you will, yeah. that don't feel quite right. And we don't normally follow through with, with them. And who knows what's happening in that way. So again, it's this whole black-white discernment piece. One thing I do want to share about IONS and the, the work w that we do there, we have a large ongoing program right now called the IONS Discovery Lab. It is looking at three factors, interconnectedness, extended human capacities, or what we might call psi or channeling, and well-being. And it's looking at the relationship between those in relation to transformative practices. So like, you know, meditation, sound healing, channeling, any type of workshop that someone is leading, we measure before and after on these three factors. And then we're collating all that data to see which aspects of the workshop support people in increasing their interconnectedness, well-being, and extended human capacities the most. And then also, what is it about the individuals themselves that supports them to perhaps do better meditation than, say, shamanic healing or something like that? Hmm. So we finished phase one. We had about 1,900 records there, and uh, we've had some really interesting findings that we submitted to be published for peer review. And um, we've started phase two. It's available in Spanish and French, soon to be Chinese, German, Italian, and Portuguese. And it's available on mobile phones. So if any of your listeners are like, oh, I have this incredible practice that I do, or this workshop that I went to, that they can connect with us to sign up for this Ions Discovery Lab. It is no cost to the workshop leader to sign up for this. So we're really excited about that project. So what you're saying is there's some kind of an app that you can put on your phone and when you go to workshops or you sit and meditate or something, this app picks up information, are you saying? So let's say I'm gonna to go to a seven day meditation retreat. Mm -hmm. Before I start it, I go to a link on my phone just through my web browser yeah. and I complete a 20 minute survey. I see. It's, it's questionnaires and online tasks. Mm -hmm. 
And then when I'm done with my seven day retreat, I do it again for about 15 minutes, mm. the end ones of 15 minutes. And then all that data gets uploaded to our larger database and we can analyze it. And then the leader of the seven day retreat gets a report from everybody who went to that retreat to see how it's, sh how they shifted from that one retreat. I see. I guess the reason I asked that question is I seem to recall you saying something about an an app that might be in development or something that would be kind of a random number generator that you could put on your phone and that it would detect, it would be influenced by things that you were going through, you know, maybe if you meditated or went on a retreat or something else, and that that data could be sent back to IONS. Was, was that, did I understand that correctly? Yes. So that app is still in development. It's called Entangled. It's being developed by Adam Curry and, um, it is a basically portable random number generator. And so um, when that's completed, you'll be able to see your own statistics on your phone to see if you've influenced your random number generator in your phone. And then it'll also go to the cloud to be able to collate with everybody who's using it. That app is still in development. That's interesting. So if you had like a regular meditation practice where you meditated twice a day and you could perhaps tell it when you were starting and when you were stopping over time, you could see whether the numbers changed uh, in correlation with your meditation practice. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's cool. Huh. Yeah. Well, IONS must be a fun place to work. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I feel so grateful for the work that I'm doing. And, you know, I've only touched on a few of the projects we're working on. So I invite people to check us out and get on our email list so you can stay float with all the work that we're doing. And we'd love you to be involved. Yeah. So that's noetic.org. Well, thanks so much. I really have enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much, Rick. It's been great being with you today and talking about all these fascinating things. Until next time. Yes, and there will be a next time. And um, I'll put up a page on BatGap for this interview, and it'll have a link to your book. And remind me when your new book comes out, because I can add a link for that. What kind of people would you like to hear from in order to involve them in studies? I mean, channelers, any other people? Anybody. Well, all, not anybody. You can, the... <laughs> you can get inundated, but... All of the above. Well, for example, that genetic study, you know, with the 23andMe, anyone can participate in that. Hmm. Um, we also were starting a collaboration with Columbia University looking at neuroimaging mm -hmm. and psi abilities. So you can submit your brain scans and see how that correlates with any of the psychic abilities huh. you may be experiencing. So then in particular, people who have some kind of psychic abilities or see auras or, you know, are empathic in some way or channeling or profoundly intuitional or any of those things, they could get in touch with you. They could actually submit a 23andMe data thing and yeah. you'd be collecting useful information. Absolutely. And then, you know, the Noetic Signature Inventory Study will probably be launched in the next couple of weeks. And um, anybody can take that inventory, which will give information about their specific noetics channeling signature. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another really fun way for people to participate. Great. And as you said, IONS has a, a, a email list that one can sign up for to be notified when these things come out. That's right. Good. That's right. Great. All right. So thank you very much. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. As you know, this is a series. So if you'd like to be notified of 
subsequent episodes, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel. And it, once you subscribe, if you click on that little bell icon that shows up to the right of the subscribe button, then you really get notified. It tells you this, uh, about everything that gets posted, which is about once a week. And um, also at the website, you'll see you know various things that are pretty self-evident. Podcast link and email newsletter sign up and various other things. So just explore the menus. And uh, thank you for listening or watching. And thank you again, Helene. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.